Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I'm Liam Maitland, KCBS foodie chap, talking to author Andrew Friedman. The book is Chefs, Drugs, and Rock and Roll. Andrew, welcome to San Francisco. Good to see you. Thank you. Good to be here. Good to meet you. Let's talk about the title first. Okay. Chefs, Drugs, and Rock and Roll. Uh, The title. What's behind it? Uh, first of all, can you believe that title wasn't taken? I'm, no one I'm, had ever, you know no what? headline, no episode of a show. I'm so surprised because when I, when I saw the title of this book, I thought, I'm sure I've seen that somewhere before. No. And yet, no, original. No. Well I remember done. When it well popped, done, you. Thank you. It popped into my head one day at yeah. a traffic light. Um, I mean, the title to me, to be completely honest about it, uh, it's funny because we're in this moment right now in society in general and in this industry, you know, the reckoning, the Me Too moment. Absolutely. When I came up with this title, to me, really, it was, um, first and foremost, I'm just irresistible, I thought. And second of all, I thought it was very evocative of the 70s. Obviously, there's that phrase, uh, it's really sex and drugs yeah. and rock and roll, as certain diehards have pointed out to me for sure. the last several years. Yeah. I hate the cadence of that yeah. first and. I, it doesn't work for me, yeah. so I, it, I took the liberty of removing it. Um, and then also, you know, it, it, there, there obviously was a lot of substance going on back in the day. Yeah. And, you know, there's whole f- ter- this phrase that was popular years ago, chefs as rock stars. Sure. This is what seemed to make sense for me. And I always, obviously listeners can't see it, but on the cover of the book are the original four uh, chefs from Michael Santa Monica. And that to me, a lot of people have said, not just when they see it here, but in, when they've seen it run in the past elsewhere, it's a black and white cover of four chefs outside uh, behind, uh, at Michael's uh, Santa Monica, a restaurant that's still there. It looks like an album yeah. cover. So to me, the, the photo and the title just went together and I was lucky to get the, uh, to get that photograph. Yeah. Let's drop a few names. Sure. Uh, is that Jonathan Waxman up there on the left-hand corner? Yeah. So uh, at age 28 yeah. in 1979, when Michael's Santa Monica opened, Jonathan was the oldest of those four gentlemen on the cover. These are these were yeah. kids, as were most of the people in this story. Yeah. They could be the Beatles, the Fab Four. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, it looks it does look like a band. Well, you know, and you you mentioned here uh, a new American profession. Uh, for so many years, I mean, all the best chefs, they, they were French, they were Italian, uh, and you were a cook, not a chef. Uh, so what shifted? Uh, I know in the book you talk about the Vietnam War and uh, people traveling uh, and the affordability of travel, people going away, further afield, and discovering food, uh, and then bringing that home. So what was the shift? What was it exactly uh, that made this a new profession. Yeah. So, as you said, uh, in this country, because I do think it's important to say a new American profession, yeah. right? Because it yeah. was almost unheard of that a young kid sure. from a quote-unquote good home in this country 
would turn to their parents one day and say, hey, you know what, mom and dad, I think I might like to be a cook. That didn't happen. And when the people in this book started telling their parents that, almost across the board, there were a few exceptions, but almost across the board, their parents flipped out. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, are you kidding me? I put you through college and exactly. you want to be a cook? Or law school in yeah. some cases. Yeah. I mean, you know, these were all people who we would now call career changers, yeah. you know? Um, so... A lot of things uh, changed. There were d- different things, I think, influenced um, the, the, the shift more in different regions of the country. But one thing I think is really important, you, you, know, you mentioned French a minute ago, the Nouvelle Cuisine moment that happened. Yeah. Um, you know, I th- people don't really understand this. If, even in France, sure. where cuisine, we think, oh, cuisine's always been so important there. It has been. But yeah. professional chefs were looked down upon there, too. Absolutely. This all started to change around the 1960s, this movement that became known as Nouvelle Cuisine. Yeah. The most famous practitioner was Paul Bocuse, who we just yeah. lost this year. But he a giant, uh, and he did revolutionize the game. He brought chefs out of the kitchen, onto the floor. Uh, yeah. Uh, he was the first, uh, and he led that trend and that revolution, if you will. He did that. These guys, instead of uh, just cooking out of what I think of as the Escoffier playbook, sure. menus were largely interchangeable at French restaurants, yeah. even in France. People yeah. were just cooking out of the canon of French classics. Sure. And what these guys started to do was to move away from that to what we now assume is what a chef does. Personalized, mm-hmm. plated cuisine. You have your own style. Yeah. And Bocuse was the most well-known, but there was a whole group of them. Their restaurants were known either formally or informally by their names. Yeah. You know, I'm going to Paul Bocuse. I'm going to Alain Chappelle. I'm yeah. going to, uh, sure. you, know, Gar- you know, this is, I'm going to Trois Gros. Yeah. Uh, so A, the food was changing, becoming more expressive and more creative. And B, the chefs were becoming known. Yeah. And that dovetailed with these things you just mentioned, all these cultural influences yeah. that led this generation of young Americans to basically not be their parents, to be looking for something to do that was more soulful. That was, it all sounds very cliche no. today, but that was more personal. That was more they had, could invest personal passion in. Some of those people became filmmakers. Some of them became musicians. Mm-hmm. Some of them picked up a set of knives and became chefs. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, for the most part, until really the 80s, I mean, uh, in here you talk of Wolfgang Puck. Uh, he was almost embarrassed to have to go come out of the kitchen and meet people because he was so shy. Yeah. Uh, and yet, you know, people expect the chef to walk the tables. Uh, Dominique Crenn, for example, here, uh, Atelier Crenn or Petite Crenn, uh, she makes a point every night of doing a few laps around the restaurant and going up to each diner and saying, yeah. are you having a good time? Nice yeah. to meet you. Taking pictures, taking photos. I mean, this was unheard of. You didn't, you didn't know the chef. You probably didn't even want to touch the chef or the cook. Yeah, well, there are a couple lines in the book. Uh, uh, you know, Mari Batali, who's obviously yeah. uh, a controversial person right now, uh, but, you know, he has this great line uh, that cooking used to be unglamorous. It was the first thing you did after the army and the last thing you did before you went to prison. Yeah. You know? uh, Jan Birnbaum, a San Francisco chef. Legends, um, yeah, Jan, uh, we love him. You know, but Jan in the book makes, says that you know, back in the day, you never would be seen on, in the street in your uniform, right? Now that's yeah. totally there's no, I I've tested recipes with chefs sometimes for cookbooks, and I will tell you that I very vividly remember once in a while having to run down to the store for something they didn't have in the walk-in yeah. for a recipe for their cookbook. And I'd be in whites because I wanted to sure. keep my clothes clean. People <laughs> yeah. would, where do you work? Yeah. You know, you'd start, people yeah. would start chatting you up. And um, so that 
was something that very much changed. The other thing that's interesting about this book, yeah. this book ends in 1993. Yeah. Very few people in the book, these, the main cast of characters, had more than one restaurant when this book fades out. And I remember I first got around this industry around that time. Yeah. And it, it's now almost – you mentioned Dominique. That's an exception. Yeah. You know, people now have empires, and I don't. I always say I don't begrudge anyone their empires. They're sure. all making more money. There's more jobs yeah. for cooks, but it, there was this magic moment in the '80s and early '90s where you went to a restaurant and yeah. the chef was there. Yeah, Wolfgang, Wolfgang Puck was in the kitchen at Spago, yeah, Trio. Uh, Roland Pessoa here, one of the rare exceptions. He is in the kitchen and on the line. To this day, at, yes. La, at La Folie. Yeah, it's amazing. But back, there was this magic moment when all these people yeah. had one restaurant. Sure. And if you went to, uh, you know, if you went to River Cafe, you yeah. saw David Burke. If you went to Gotham Barn Grill, you saw Alfred Portali. If you went to Jojo, the first mm-hmm. restaurant that John George Von Grichten owned, you saw John George. Yeah. You know, if you went to Stars here in San Francisco, you saw Jeremiah. This was like, there was a moment where that was the only place they would be. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and they were all still kind of following the the, the work ethic of the of the of these, I mean, admittedly very hard-ass European taskmasters they came up working for, a lot of them, uh, who worked them like six days a week. That was very normal, you know? And it... It's it's now more of almost like a special treat when you see the chef. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. and and people want to. Yeah. I love that in the book you give credit to people uh, that some may not know, people that should be known that are not. Chef Marta uh, out of Los Angeles. Yeah, why well, was he special? Well, Bruce Martyr is interesting to me for a lot of reasons. Yeah. He's, it's, I'm not even going to call it a spoiler because it's the first page of the book. Bruce is the chef who opens the book. I won't reveal what the story is. Yeah. but it, it was, You're going to love this story, folks. You've got to buy the book. <laughs> You've got to read it. Uh, but this story to me just had every influence we talked about at the beginning of this interview, right? It, had, it has drugs, music references, yeah. travel. Sure. Uh, you know, a, 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 he was on his way to being a dentist. I don't mind saying that right yeah. now. Yeah. It's all there in the yeah. space of a page and a half. And, but Bruce, you know, uh, there's several reasons he opens the book. One is, to be completely honest about it, I very much did not want to write another book that began with Alice Waters having an epiphany in, in France or, or Wolfgang Puck, you know, as a young boy being fired from the kitchen sure. in, 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 uh, in, in France. You know, I, these, sto- these yeah. stories are in the book and they're, they're important stories and they're iconic, yeah. but people have heard them. People who follow this stuff, you know, uh, regularly. And Bruce is a guy who, uh, is barely known even in Los Angeles, although he's been operating restaurants there very successfully for 40 years. And he had a place called the West Beach Cafe. Mm -hmm. The first person who ever mentioned it to me in an interview was Jeremiah Tower, who told me that that restaurant was very influential in the thinking that led him to open Stars, Mm -hmm. the spirit of that place. But this was a place that was a half block from the sands of Venice Beach that was basically a cinder block space with industrial carpeting. But Bruce had, you know, modern art by local Venice artists on the walls, uh, windows. This was, this all sounds so obvious and normal now, but Wind, you know, sunlight streaming in through big windows. Sure. That was new. Yeah. Um, he did a Mexican breakfast. He kind of freestyled in the kitchen. Yeah. He was this very intuitive chef, but he was also 
kind of antisocial. He didn't play their reindeer games. He didn't do the benefits. Sure. He didn't. He didn't. Uh, he didn't buy journalist drinks. Yeah. He didn't glad hand people. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Did he just lose you? <laughs> Thanks for the water, by the way. Thanks for the water. No, but he. Um, so he. He's always often left out of the histories. Yeah. He's never been nominated for a Beard Award. And yet, you talk to someone like Ruth Reichel, as I did. She's yeah. in the book oh, yeah. quoted as saying that he was doing what became known as California cuisine before anybody. Yeah. So one reason I put him there was because, uh, well, A, the story he told me was just, I mean, I knew the minute he told me. I'm like, yeah. that's how the book's going to open yeah. in my head. Yeah. B, um, he, I thought, was important to to point out that, as I say, in, in the writing, history is told by the victors. You know, there are there is yeah. this cast of characters that are known that I think largely inevitably were going to be the main figures in my book, and mostly I think deservedly so. But I wanted to make the point that there are these people who were just into cooking, trying to make a living, not pursuing a legacy, yeah. not promoting themselves, and some of those people are forgotten. Some of them I was able to, you know, uh, sleuth out in name. Sure. But I think it's important to remember how history. It, not just about food, anything gets uh-huh. boiled down to these key figures. You know, at some point, there's this book called um, What If We're Wrong by yes. Chuck Klosterman. Yeah. And one of the things he talks about in that book is the, this, how this happens, right? Like mm-hmm. in, in 200 years, someone will say reggae, and the only thing anyone will know is Bob Marley. Right. You know? Yeah. But there were how many dozens of sure. influential, important people doing that. And I thought it was important to make that point about chefs. Yeah. You know, th- and this is by no means a comprehensive reference book. Uh, if you've just joined us, folks, uh, talking to Andrew Friedman, author of Chefs, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, we're covering it all. Another key figure uh, in the world of food, Edna Lewis in the 1950s. Yeah. Uh, Edna, um, again, a lot of people uh, don't know a lot about her. Some yeah. do. Uh, but for her to be doing what she was in the 1950s, African-American, and a strong woman of power at that time. At that time, a, a, a chef in New York City yeah. who had moved up from the South, who I, I, mean, I will say admittedly, I am no expert on Edna Lewis. I, I, I wanted to make the point, though, when I brought her up, because mm-hmm. my book very much takes place when people started flocking to this industry in large numbers, right? Yeah. But again, as I just said, things get simplified by history. Yeah. And, and Edna Lewis, a black woman in New York City in the 50s, yeah. Yeah. I mean, how many black women chefs are operating restaurants in New York City today? Yeah. Almost nobody in this country sure. in any kind of prominence, yeah. you know, and she was a co-owner. Mm-hmm. I mean, amazing. Didn't fit my narrative, but I thought it was important to make the point that there were these outliers who predated my narrative. Yeah. I think, you know, it's funny. I had a, I had a horrifying, I can't say who it is because he's a friend of mine, <laughs> but it was a horrifying moment where I sat with a writer friend of mine who had written, just finished a book yeah. a year or two ahead of me. And he was talking about, I was, I, I took five years with this book, partially because I had such a hard time making the decisions I'm talking about. And there's, there's so much to cover, so many chefs yeah. to talk to. Yeah. I mean, and you take a pretty deep delve here. I do. So, um, it was hard for me, yeah. and and this is the world I write about all the time. So when pe- I would take people out of the narrative, mm-hmm. that was hard for me. Yeah. Um, but what this person said to me was, he said, you know, I said, how do you know if you're getting it right? Yeah. You know, when you're yeah. working, writing about a place you never were, a room you weren't in. And he said to me, I think he goes, I realized at one point that this was a, a universe of my book, and I was the god of my universe. <laughs> and in my mind, I said, no, no, huh? you know that you're huh? not. But I think a lot of writers. Yeah. 
I, I had this talk recently about t- tennis with someone, sure. which is another thing I write about a little bit. I think there are, I, I've come to this belief recently that there are writers who look at their subjects as mm-hmm. just fodder for their writing, sure. almost like they're fictional characters. Yeah. Interesting. And they look, and then there are writers I think who look at these people as people. Yeah. You know, and I'm definitely in the latter camp. There's, sure. there's, uh, there are probably salacious things I could have put in the book. There are yeah. probably details that would have embarrassed people that maybe would have made it into the newspaper. You know what I mean? Yeah. That would have gotten me attention. It's not worth it to me. Sure. Not, not about, not about cooking. So, um, and food clearly is a passion, obviously, of yours, uh, and you celebrate our chefs mm-hmm. uh, through your writing. Uh, before we go back to the book, I just have to ask you, where, where did that fire in your belly uh, first ignite? I mean, your, your passion for food. You know, growing up, was, was, was mom cooking, dad, grandma? Where, where did that passion begin? So, uh, I mean, the quick story is, well, to answer your last question first, no. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I grew up with a single working mom. Yeah. Uh, as often as not, we ate fast food. I yeah. mean, she was exhausted. Came home, dropped a bag of Wendy's, you know, hamburgers and fries on the table. That was dinner, yeah. and that was understandable. Um, I did have a my stepmother was Cuban and still is, and used to cook Cuban food. That was probably my first experience with like really kind of evocative home. I can still smell some of those dishes, you yeah. know, that were amazing. But no, I I I grew up without any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. I always loved a good restaurant. Yeah. Um, Do you remember the first time you went to a fancy restaurant and you sat down and you thought, ooh, this is special, this is uh, – and did you feel comfortable there? Yeah, I, I, I probably looked ridiculous because I would get very formal in my demeanor when I was a kid if I went somewhere formal. Yeah. Um, uh, I can't remember their name. The, the name. There was a French restaurant in Coral Gables, Florida where I grew up, which is where the University of Miami is. Yeah. I can't. It was not sure. It was charade or some name like that. I thought that was a very sophisticated restaurant. And for the time and place, it probably was. Um, I remember my mom bringing me to Maxwell's Plum in New York City when I I came to New York City for college. But she started bringing me up a little before that once a year. Maxwell's Plum, I didn't notice at the time, but was notorious for its... Uh, what did they call it? the singles bar? Sure. The pickup, the pickup scene. It was famous for that. Yeah. Um, the bar from Maxwell's Plum, incidentally, exists today. It was. Still? It is at the bar. I mean, the physical wooden bar oh. is the bar at Tribeca Grill. Drew Porrent, the owner of Tribeca Grill, had been a waiter yeah. at Maxwell's Plum, and yeah. he bought that bar. The just the physical bar. But but anyway, I you know with the food thing. I became a publicist in the 90s to yeah. subsidize a, what I thought would be a screenwriting career. Yeah. I was just looking for a day job. Yeah. And I happened to go to work for the top restaurant PR firm in New York City at the time. And all of a sudden, I was representing Alfred Portali at the Gotham Barn oh, Grill, yeah. Rocco Despirito when he was the chef of Union Pacific Restaurant. He sure. was, people, younger people may not know, Rocco was yeah. the hottest chef in the country sure. for a oh, little yeah. bit. Marcus Samuelson, yeah. when he was just appointed the chef at Aquavit. These were my clients. Yeah. And I... I, 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 at some point, even though I collaborated on a lot of cookbooks over the years and, and things like that, I came to this realization that I, I don't think of myself as a food writer. I think of myself as a chef writer. I turned a corner at one point where I realized that what I was most interested in was these people, yeah. their lives, their yeah. careers, how they found their, their voice on the plate, yeah. as I like to say. Um, and that became my focus. And inevitably, maybe that led, that's kind of what led to sure. this book. Uh, and I think this is why I connect with you and the book, because yeah. I feel in the same vein, uh, 
I care about how the chef got to where he or she is. Uh, what started their journey? Uh, where, where did that passion begin? Where is it now? And where are they heading? Because yeah. uh, I'll often interview chefs while we're cooking. Well, they're cooking. I'm just helping. Yeah. Uh, and I will come home and my partner will say, hey, what did you cook? And I'll go, uh... But I could tell you everything about their journey. I could tell you who the mentor was, yeah. the first restaurant. All yeah. that stuff stays with me because I, that's what I, like yourself, care about. The chef, the Isn't mind of the amazing? chef, the journey of the chef. Because uh, it is a fascinating decision to make, a career to embark upon. It's not an easy one. Yeah. It's one of the toughest ones. Uh, the chefs end up on television. You know, this book sort of ends just as Mario Batali is getting his first TV show. Yes. This is before the world of TV chefs. Uh, the 70s, 80s, uh, a very different time for chefs. Totally. But, you know, it's funny. You and I were talking right before we started recording. Yeah. You you started your career covering sports. Yeah. I no. cover tennis a little right. bit, right? Now, I happen to love tennis. You yeah. Yeah. Can I say that you... You can. No, I'm not passionate about cricket you at all. You were passionate about cricket. Yeah. Okay. I didn't know if I could say yeah. that. Uh, yeah. That was before we started recording. Yeah, that was recording. the first thing I did as a broadcaster, yeah. Right. So, but yeah. here's the interesting thing to me, and I wonder if you... Re- Do you mind me asking no, you a no, question? No, I wonder if you relate to this. Yeah. So... Um, Tennis players' biographies are very similar. At some point, they're mostly these days end up at an academy hitting thousands of balls a day. Yeah. That's what happens. And then they go on tour, mm-hmm. and they have a rough start, and then they either get good or they don't. Yeah. Okay. And we don't really write about yeah. the ones who don't. Yeah. As, as Ed Levine of Sirius Eats said to me recently, I was making this point, and yeah. he's, he phrased it so I have to give him credit. He said, all chefs connect the dots differently. Yeah. And what I find so fascinating is... In the best possible way, I don't mean this in the the unfortunate political way this word gets used now. They're like snowflakes. No yeah. two are the same. They, they, Absolutely they, true. They all have yeah. a, a unique yeah. story. Some went to cooking school. Some yeah. don't go to cooking school. Um, some stage or work for you know ten different people. Mm-hmm. Some go to work. I just interviewed Timothy Hollingsworth, who's yeah. the chef at OTM in Los Angeles, yeah. and he was with Thomas Keller. He was with Thomas Keller's entire. Per- he started with a restaurant in Northern California, yeah. way way up north. Yeah. Became fixated on the French laundry. Mm-hmm. Came there as a commis or a prep cook. Mm-hmm. Spent his entire career at the French laundry yeah. until he moved to LA and opened his own restaurant. Right? Yeah. That's one way to do it. Sure. You know. Yeah. Then you have these people who just knock around, go all over the world, yeah. go to Europe and stage at eight different places in a year. They're, and then what they can do with that knowledge. Yeah. I mean, the book describes the time period when it became possible to where any the anything goes philosophy mm-hmm. took hold. Sure. But they can also do anything with it. Yeah. It's it's really extraordinary. So that to me is what's so fascinating. Yeah. And there is, uh, like yourself, I talk to chefs almost every day, yeah. uh, and there is no one journey, as you say, that's the same, uh, like snowflakes. Alice Waters has been interviewed a hundred times. Yeah. Um, and she's prominent. The story of Chez Panisse and what came out uh, of that restaurant 40-plus years on, it's still going, it's still kicking, it's still relevant. Uh, did you learn anything new or surprising about Allison and that part of the Chez Panisse story? I mean, what I, what I will go back to is what I said a minute ago, right? Yeah. My vantage point, yeah. and it was really – this book is all pretty long as it is yeah. – um, uh, but, you know, my vantage point is very much the evolution of the chef profession, right? Yeah. And what, what I tried to look at, because people would say to me, 
you know, so obviously Chez Panisse is in your book. And for the longest time I said, yes, but what is the new thing to say about Chez Panisse? And what I came to was, uh, and this was sort of new to me because everyone thinks about Jeremiah Tower coming there. He was the second chef there. His role became hugely important. And he brought sophistication, really, uh, if you will, to to Chez Panisse uh, in terms of the menus. uh, And he had a, a more global uh, view oh, than yeah. ours. Oh, yeah. I mean, people forget this. You know, Chez Panisse opened basically as a, a French restaurant. The menus were written in French. Yeah. It was very traditional French cuisine. And that's fine, but that is news to most people. Um, but the other thing is the role of the chef when that restaurant opened was almost incidental. This, to me, shows how quickly things changed in this time period I write about. 1971, the restaurant opens. The original chef was a woman named Victoria Croyer, K. R-O-Y-E-R. Yeah. Who kn- how many people know that yeah. name? Now no, her name's- that was new to me. Yeah, so her name is now Victoria Wise. She, yeah. she opened a, a charcuterie shop in, in Berkeley after she left Chez Panisse, and she's written several cookbooks. Yeah. And, but but, but nobody, if you say to people who was the first chef at Chez Panisse, people don't know. So that, that, to me, the fact that this was not an essential – I mean, she ran the, the, the kitchen. She was in charge in the kitchen. She collaborated on the menus with Alice and with Lindsay Sher, the original pastry chef. But I think the fact that this was not a role, a person who was promoted, you know, in the press, who was uh, a a focus of attention, you know, who was largely anonymous. And you look at how that changed and how then over, you know, and then 10 years later, I mean, I can name you a lot of people who've been the chef. Paul Bertoli was the chef at Chez Panisse. Christopher Lee was the chef at Chez Panisse. David Tannis was, you know. There are a lot of people. Um, so that that's, from my vantage point, that's what was interesting, how much that role changed and how quickly. Yeah. Uh, and I did learn something new about Alice Waters. Yeah. She took LSD, a little juicy bit right there. She said, <laughs> I, did it, I did it once. Yes. Well, you know what's funny, though, is, you know, you asked me about the title of the book before. It's amazing how many people, I don't think I actually quote this in the book, but I had asked Michael McCarty of Michael's in Santa Monica, uh, about, you know, the role, if he thought drugs had played a part in what happened, you know. And he said to me, he said, I don't know how you would say it didn't, you know. And then he said to me, anyone who took acid certainly saw the world in a new way. I think it's hard for people today to understand how, just how much it wa- I'm trying to think of the way to phrase it, how much it wasn't done yeah. that you would go into the restaurant business as an American. You yeah. didn't do it. Yeah. And, and people needed to have um, this pathway opened up to them. And I think, to be honest, yeah. and people have said it to me, drugs open, you know, open their mind. Well, we can also talk about music. We could talk about that for hours. But look right. at the Beatles. Some of the most creative stuff they say uh, is when they were experimenting with LSD. The Beatles, Bob Dylan. Yeah. You know, someone says in the book, I think it was Alice, says yeah, was, yeah. she took LSD and all of a sudden yeah. she understood what Bob Dylan yeah. meant. Yeah. I mean, and then Mark France, who was the chef at Stars for years and has Farallon and, and Water Bar today, says that he thought Bob Dylan changed the world. Yeah. There is all this dovetailing of, of art, music, culture, politics, and food, especially where you and I are sitting today like yeah. in the bay area sure. i think more than anywhere else so of course this book does end, it ends in the early 90s there's so much more to cover so what's 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 the next book uh the next book i'm doing i can't say too much yet but i will say it is not the sequel to this it is uh a book um it's sort of a high concept idea of mine but it will be about um the subject of the book is a restaurant in brooklyn that's uh, very popular, 
and have given me some access, and they're going to be the willing subjects of the next book I write. So my next book is going to be very much of the moment. I'm excited to read it. Uh, Before uh, we leave each other, uh, I have to ask you, Andrew, you spent some time in San Francisco talking to a lot of local chefs uh, for this book. As a food city, uh, San Francisco, where does it sit uh, today in terms of creativity, uh, innovation, uh, quality of food, and the chefs who are operating here today, 2018. Okay. Well, first of all, do you think if I felt like otherwise that I would, I would, I would say it? Um, uh, I mean, it's a top five, right? I mean, yeah. it has to be. Yeah. It has to be. Yeah. I mean, what I think is uh, when you talk about creativity, I mean, the thing, I'll just make a global comment. Sure. Um, the first person to say this to me, this brings it full circle, was Jeremiah Tower, actually, right? One of the most well-known San Francisco chefs ever. You know, I think the influence of social media, particularly Instagram, I, I, I recognize it as a valuable media tool. I use it myself. I have three different Instagram accounts. I have one for the book, one for the podcast, my podcast, and one for myself, right? I promise I'll follow all three. Uh, thank you. I'll follow for a follow, yes? Sure, absolutely. Deal. So, uh, but, uh, you know, the way ideas travel the world now, I think there is uh, a lot less distinction yeah. between different markets than there used to be. Yeah. I think you see, you know, in the time of this book, I think there was a very distinct Bay Area sure. aesthetic. I think yeah. there was a very distinct Los Angeles aesthetic. I think there was a very distinct New York aesthetic. And I think that's, I, I don't even know if you could say America right now has its yeah. own because, you know, a dish goes up on the pass in Copenhagen yeah. and people all over the chefs cooks all over the world are seeing it and that used it used to be first of all there was no internet there was very little coverage of chefs it used to be that if you you could not go on a website and see a slideshow of a restaurant you had to travel sure you You had to go there so so people individuals voices and the voices of a a community such as it was were much more distinct so i i i think san francisco because it's one of the most sophisticated cities in the country it's got some of the deepest food traditions in the country it's still a place that people very much want to be i think because of all that it remains one of the most creative all these things you said for sure but i do think i mean to me um you know new york to me is not as exciting i'm a proud new yorker i love new york i also love California dearly I fell in love with it while I was writing this book and I made about 12 trips out to the west coast to interview people but to me there's so much sameness in the food now in New York and friends of mine might not like me to hear me say that but I really think there is and I think there's less of that out here but I still think it's a factor and I think it's just the way life is right now I don't know how you you get rid of that um, but I'll, can I say one last thing? Because it's, it's just, uh, it was fascinating to me. I interviewed a chef named Angie Marr in New York City. has a restaurant called the Beatrice Inn. Yes. It's a meat, very meat-centric yeah. restaurant. And Angie told me that she does not go to eat at other chefs' restaurants. And if she does, she goes out for pasta or sushi, because those are two things she doesn't really do herself. Yeah. And the reason was she wants to make... She wants to follow her own sort of North Star. She wants to keep honing her own voice. She doesn't want to be, she doesn't want too many other influences to seep into what she does. So it was interesting. I had just eaten at the restaurant for the first time, but there's no kale salad there. You know, there's no avocado toast. There's, you know, these dishes that have become ubiquitous, they're not there. And I think 
there were exceptions to this. Anyone who dined around in the 80s, you know, remembers, uh, or the no- early 90s, the, 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 the goat cheese beet walnut salad. Yes, sure. That was everywhere. I mean, there were these things, yeah. but... I think there are more of those things now, yeah. and you see them. And once in a while, someone will send me two screen grabs of two different restaurants' Instagram accounts, yeah. and it's the same dish. No, no absolutely. And that, that, I think, is unfortunate. But anyway, no, I think San Francisco is still right up there. Good. But listen, uh, last question to you. I always ask this of my chefs. and uh, put it to you, your last supper. You can have four guests at the table, okay. dead or alive, okay. famous or not. Uh-huh. Who will they be? What will you eat and drink? So uh, I would probably have... um, So I grew up wanting to be a writer. I fell in love with uh, kind of the New York writers of of the 20s. Um, So I'd probably have, you know, Fitzgerald, uh, Dorothy Parker, uh, Ernest Hemingway, and then uh, I guess somebody who I would maybe throw in from uh, the, the future, but who I see as part of that group, John Cheever. Yeah. Um, you know I'm going to do you a favor. I'm going to yeah. let you choose a chef to cook your meal. Right. So, will it be? Well, this is tough for me. So I'm t- can I give you what my two options would sure, be? Okay. So one option would be I would probably have Alfred Portali of the Gotham Barn Grill. Alfred used to be my client when I was a publicist. Alfred gave me my break. Yeah. I wrote the Gotham Bar Grill cookbook. I spent, we did three books together. That restaurant was on the way from my office to my apartment. Yeah. I, my formative years of this business were spent eating there, um, writing with him in the office at night, and then going upstairs and ordering dinner there. Yeah. There are dishes from his cookbooks that were served at the restaurant that I can cook from memory. Um, so for the, he cooked the, the lunch I had after my wedding. I eloped. My wife and I eloped. Yeah. We, had, we got married in the garden of the James Beard House, which oh. is on the same street as the Gotham, yeah. on a Thursday afternoon, yeah. walked to the restaurant, Alfred cooked lunch for us. So that, for sentimental value, that. Now, the other option would be having written this book and having thought about this period so much, food from a restaurant that I have never had. Uh, so I think it would uh, maybe be, I think maybe let Jeremiah Tower go nuts and do, uh, do a star's. Doesn't go nuts, he already is. Do a star, <laughs> but do a star's menu for me and, or maybe, maybe, some, maybe uh, Barry Wine and company from the Quilted Giraffe, you know. A tasting menu. I may have to gate crash that dinner party. <laughs> uh, Andrew, an absolute treat talking to you. You've also very kindly shared a recipe, uh, which will be on my website. And this dish is also special to you, right? Yeah, it was one of the Gotham dishes. That was a, a pasta that I used to go in and eat all the time. And uh, uh, I used to. I sent you one recipe. I used to have this the tuna tartare. Uh, which is one of his signature things. And then this pasta, which I do not believe they s- is in rotation anymore at the Gotham. Yeah. But um, I used to order it, and I think I can say this now, there was sort of a high roller diner who used to come in a lot. Yeah. I think he used to bring his own wines, mm-hmm. and it was his favorite pasta. So they always had the mise en place available for it. Yeah. So because of that, I was able to order it. I knew not to ask for it whenever I wanted it, but I don't believe it's in rotation anymore, which makes it more special. Sure, and joyfully, uh, our listeners get to download the recipe, make it for themselves. Uh, We want to connect our listeners with your podcast, Andrew Talking to Chefs, and they can find that where? Thank you. Actually, Andrew talks to chefs. Andrew talks to chefs. I always say, I'm sorry to correct you, but only because if the people go to search it, that'll... Andrew talks to chefs, yes. Uh, It's a Heritage Radio Network podcast, but the easiest thing to do is search for it by name on iTunes or Stitcher. It'll come right up. You can subscribe, and they're weekly 60 to 90-minute 
mostly biographical, uh, but not always conversations with chefs and nothing but chefs. I love it. An absolute pleasure to meet you, my friend. Thank, Thank you, you so much. You. Yeah. Thank you for coming to San Francisco. The book is Chefs, Drugs, and Rock and Roll. Andrew Friedman, the author. He shared a delish pasta recipe. That and more on Andrew's story. You'll find it at kcbsradio.com and click on Foodie Chap. Cheers. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.